Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. God, we love you. And you have called us together today to lift praise to you, to praise you in the name of Jesus, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to be instructed by your word and sit under it today. And so we pray that we could do that with open hearts and minds. We're grateful for the freedom that we have to gather together. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, we get some pushback, Lord, but many of them are being persecuted. And so uh, we just ask you to, to strengthen them, let their witness encourage and challenge us uh, so that we can be more effective in sharing our faith for you uh, and leverage every freedom we've got for the sake of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we could hear the gospel today, that we could hear the good news of what you've done in Jesus, and that it could motivate us to want to share that with somebody else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I told you that when I was a kid, I got to play peewee football in our local YMCA league. And I have this very, very distinct memory of going with my dad to our, the old historic YMCA gymnasium and waiting in line with a bunch of other kids my age to get my helmet and shoulder pads and, you know, and the hip stuff and leg pads and all that stuff. And so we're standing in line and we're going through and they're handing us the stuff, right? And the last thing, and I don't know if it was random or they just assigned it or what, this is way before the day of, you know, random app or randomizer apps, um, the guy reached around behind, grabbed a jersey, and you're on the blue team. And I was like, yes, go blue, all right. And I was so excited, I was so pumped up to be on the blue team until we played our first game. Because <laughs> we got to our first game, and I saw that we were playing the red team. And the quarterback for the red team was a guy from my school named Travis. He was the best athlete in my class. He could run, he could jump, he could throw, he could duck and weave. Travis was an incredible athlete, and I thought, ooh, we are in for an uphill climb today. At halftime, it was 42 to nothing. <laughs> and, and, and we were getting killed. We were just getting annihilated by the red team, right? And, and not even that. I mean, here's the thing. Their star running back broke his leg in the game just running. Nobody tackled him. It was a freak accident, a void in the bone or something, and he just went down. Even without their star running back, they're killing us. I was looking under the bleachers for red paint. Like, <laughs> like can I please switch teams? Like, this is bad. This is not fun. But I hung in there. I stayed true to my team, and we went on to have the second worst record in the league. <laughs> Thank God for the green team, right? Because um, we were bad, but they were awful. Uh, you ever want to switch sides? <laughs> you know, you ever flirt with the idea of rooting for another team? Or maybe just not playing as hard as you're able for your own team. <sighs> maybe you tried to share your faith and it didn't go so well, and you're like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. That was rough. See, as our culture becomes increasingly apathetic or maybe even openly hostile to, our, to, to cultural Christianity, this is more of an issue. I want to put something in front of you. I want to put this thought in front of you today because I think this is significant. It speaks to where we are, okay? Our culture is not apathetic or hostile to authentic Christianity. What it objects to are plastic, fake crinos. You heard that term? Christian in name only. 
Crino. That's what the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who on the census, when it says religious affiliation, put none. That's what they've rejected. Fakes. Fake Christians. People who claim the name of Jesus and don't live like it. Because you go out on the street and you stick a microphone in someone's face and you ask them, what do you think about evangelical Christians? What do you think about Jesus? Oh, Jesus is great. Right? So what's the solution for that church? I don't know, maybe if we all live more like Jesus? Just saying. Maybe the objections would die off. (laughs) What the world objects to is people who are not ultimately faithful to their Lord. That's what they object to. That's what galls them. (laughs) But it's not always easy for our culture to tell the difference between the two. Because let's face it, some people are really good at wearing the mask. (laughs) And some of you all know those folks. God forbid some of you are those folks. They're really good at pretending until some circumstance brings out the fact that their heart hasn't really been changed by the Lord. And there are times that we think, man, it'd be convenient. It'd be easy if I could switch sides right now. The thing is, if we're going to hand off our faith, we must remain faithful to Jesus' mission because Jesus was faithful to his mission. That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, I want you to open them to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 through 14 is our text today. That's where we're going to be. Hebrews 3, 1 through 14. It was a little over 100 years ago that he died. But former uh, President Theodore Roosevelt once said, it's better to be faithful than famous. Now this seems almost prophetic for those of us who live in a time when people can derive a rich living from being influencers. Have you heard that term? Influencers. The teenagers are nodding their heads, right? An influencer is someone who gets paid, like, actual money to bring other people along with them to a product or service or company. Like, like they get on social media and they go, hey, Joe's widget shop is awesome. Everyone should shop at Joe's and everybody does, These people somehow get famous, ostensibly, for being famous. I don't know how that works. How do you get that job? What? But they do. And and we live in an age where you can become famous just for being famous. And so President Roosevelt's statement kind of grinds against that. It's better to be faithful than famous. Listen, if you want to be successful and handing off your faith, you're going to be way more affected by being faithful than by being famous. Oh, sure, you could attract a crowd, and you could woo them with charm and lavish promises. It's not what Jesus did. I mean, yes, the crowds came. (laughs) But it wasn't because he wooed them. In fact, every time the crowds got big, he tended to thin them. He said, this is hard. Thousands of people show up. Free bread, free fish. (laughs) Jesus, the very next thing out of his mouth is, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. What? 
And John, you have, this, I'm about to give you a memory verse, and I know you're going to all walk out of here, and you'll, you'll have this in your head forever, okay? Because it's John 6, 66. Have your attention now? John 6, 66 says, after that, many people walked away and no longer followed him. Saddest verse in the New Testament. Because what he's talking about is what he's predicting is what we just did with communion. Every time the crowds got big, he, he thinned them. Because he wasn't, Jesus wasn't worried about being famous. He was concerned about being faithful. And if we will be faithful to Jesus' mission, I believe our impact can be as significant in some ways as his was. All right? So thank you for being here. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for, for making this a priority. If you're new here at Chapel Rock, my name's Casey. I'd love to learn yours when we're, be done, when we're done. I'll be down front. Not for very long. I need to get out of here quick today because our Austria team is taking off this afternoon. We're meeting at the airport at 5. Flight leaves at 8. So we would welcome your prayers. Uh, I've got some folks who are going to work in the kitchen, some who are going to do yard work, and uh, some who are going to do housekeeping. I'm going to be teaching uh, a class for the, the graduates. Some of the graduates get to come back. And this past summer was my 20-year anniversary in full-time ministry, so I get to talk about how to stay in it. It's kind of appropriate that we're talking about this today, <laughs> faithfulness. We're talking about how to, I mean, a lot has been invested in these students. How do, how do you hang in there? So I'd welcome your prayers, especially every night before you go to bed. There's six hours ahead. So when you, if, you're, if you're a night owl like me, when you're going to bed, I'm about ready to get up and start my day, okay? Um, so welcome, uh, welcome your prayers uh, this week. If you're watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate that you do that. We'd love to have you here with us on site, okay? Uh, but take a second, fill out your, your connection card. Just click up here when we're done. Uh, let us know that you're watching, uh, and we'd be happy to get your prayer requests and, and, and stuff as well, okay? Over the last few weeks, we've been in a football-themed series uh, called Handoff. And we're talking about how to hand our faith on to other people. We've been talking about how living various aspects of the Christian life authentically helps us pass on our faith to other people. Today we're talking about how to share the faithfulness of Jesus. See, here's the big idea this morning. All right, Jesus is always faithful. And he calls us to share his faithfulness because when we do, our witness has real staying power. When you... Share the faithfulness of Jesus. When you live the faithfulness of Jesus, what you say about him in the public arena sticks in people's minds. If I could borrow a line from the Matrix, like a splinter in your mind. It just, it just stays there in their mind. And they go, man, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of fake Christians out there, but those folks from Chapel Rock are the real deal, man. When I, when I look at them, I see Jesus. That's what he's calling us today. See, Jesus was 100% faithful to his mission from the Father. In fact, the word we're going to read in our passage today, translated faithful, is related to the normal New Testament word for faith or trust, all right? But the way it's used here in the text is in the sense of it's reliable, it's dependable, you can count on it. And that's the way Jesus was. He was reliable, he was dependable to his mission from the Father, you could count on him. So you listen for that theme as we read the text together. Um, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, okay? Not sure who, this, who wrote this, but the author of, of Hebrews is writing, and he's in kind of a lengthy argument about how Jesus is the greatest thing ever. All right? And so this section is on how Jesus is better than Moses. All right, let's look at this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful, reliable, dependable. You can count on him. 
to the one who appointed him. Talk to me, church. Who is that? God, the Father, right. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful, now catch this language, as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken of by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. See what he's saying. Moses is a servant. Jesus is the son. And in the ancient household authority structure, the son always outranks the servant. Always. Okay? And we are his house, the church, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, now he's going to quote Psalm 95 here, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. He's talking about the Exodus generation that came out of slavery in Egypt. Where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with, this gener- with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And that's true. That generation, all but the very youngest of them, died in the wilderness. And then he says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. So how do we do that? How do we hold firm to the end? How do we remain faithful so that our faithfulness can impact the world for the gospel? So we're in this football theme series. I want to give you the game plan today, all right? X's and O's on the chalkboard. If you look real close at your bulletin underneath the text, there are X's and O's. It looks like a football coach mapping out a game plan. Here's the game plan, all right? Two parts. Two parts to it. Part one, keep a soft heart. Keep a soft heart. Now, I really doubt most football coaches, when they're talking to their team in the locker room, this is the first thing out of their mouth, right? But this is Jesus' game plan. Keep a soft heart. See, right out of the gate, this passage makes some powerful statements. It it says here, like literally the first thing it says, it's the second word, holy. Holy, brothers and sisters. Now, in the original Greek, that's that's one word, adelphoi. It's literally translated brothers, but what he means is the whole church. So it's brothers and sisters is how the NIV translates it. But he uses this word, holy. Same word that's used to talk about the the Holy Spirit and that God is holy. Same word, okay? Here's the deal. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you've made a profession of faith, been baptized, received the Spirit, are walking in discipleship, get your head around this. You are holy. Made holy by the shed blood of Jesus for you on the cross. Now, this pushes back against some of the teaching of our friends in the Catholic Church, at least the way that they present it. He calls us saints. Not literally, but that's the idea. (laughs) Right? See, in the Bible, there's two kinds of people. There's always two kinds of people, right? Sheep, goats, 
Light, dark. Saints, sinners. On that day, when we stand before God's great white throne, there are two doors. Which one do you want to go through? The one on the right, please. Right? I, I, I don't want to go through the goat door. I want to go through the sheep door. There's two kinds of people. Saints and sinners. Which one are you? If you're in Christ, the text is teaching you, you are a saint. Live like it. You don't have to be in the history book and do miracles to be a saint. If Jesus has washed away your sins, you are made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some of you are like, I don't feel that way. Me either. Aren't you glad that God calls things that are not as if they were? We're made righteous. When God looks at you, he sees his son. Praise the Lord, because I'm a mess. I'm glad he sees Jesus when he looks at me. Uh, <laughs> Listen, you're a saint. Live like it. You've been made holy by the blood of Jesus. Be faithful to that. There's another powerful truth here. See, this letter was written to Jewish Christians probably around 65 or 68 AD, somewhere in there. It had to have been written before 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Roman emperor sent his armies into Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, took it to the ground. The the worship that was prevalent there, the animal sacrifices and all that stuff, stopped. And it's never been restarted. Okay? So, but the author of Hebrews writes this as if that's still going on. He's writing to Jewish Christians who who are still living while the, the sacrificial system at the temple is still active. And he's telling them, Jesus is better than Moses. Now, for a Jewish Christian, they're like, what? Like, because there's, I mean, there's Abraham and then there's Moses. I mean, they're just, that's their viewpoint. And, and the author of Hebrews, again, we don't know who it is. I think, it's just my opinion, I think it was Apollos. He's from Alexandria, very, very literate, but also very Jewish. He gets how to speak to people. The, the, the Greek in this is very, very high-level Greek. I think that's who it was. I can't prove that. You can't prove I'm wrong, so we'll just go with it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, uh, some people think it was Matthew, so he wrote his gospel, and then later he wrote his letter. Matthew probably had some education. We, we really don't know who it was. I don't think it was Paul because it just doesn't fit his style. All his other letters are very, very different than this one, okay? Um, we don't know who it was. So the, whoever the author does writes this. The temple worship is still going on, okay? But what, what that does is it says something very significant. Because in verse 3, he says here that Jesus is the builder. And then in verse 4, he says, God built everything. What's his conclusion? Jesus is God in the flesh. So what that does is it pushes back on this lie that our culture tells that the church didn't really articulate the full divinity of Jesus until the 4th century to consolidate its power in the Roman Empire. That is a flat lie. That's not true. The church has taught the full divinity of Jesus from the very beginning. That's always been been the doctrine. And the second idea that that teaches, I think, is even more important. Because this was written before the destruction of the temple... It's an attack against the lie that Jesus was somehow God's plan B. That, well, the thing with the Jews didn't work out, so I better send my son. That, what, it's an attack against that lie. 
that, that this is somehow God's plan B. There is no plan B. The cross, his death on your place for your sins has always been plan A. From the very beginning, God knew you. He loved you before you were even born. Before you even conceived, he knew you and wanted to redeem you and bring you into his family because he's faithful to you. Now, here's why all that doctrinal stuff matters. Because the only thing that allows us to live in faithfulness to God and each other is that we've been made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus. The only thing that allows us to do what this text is talking about is because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life. He makes us holy before God. He comes into us and starts chipping away at that sin and sometimes wholesale just chucking it out the door. There are those stories of someone who gives their life to Jesus and they are miraculously delivered from an addiction. There are people who give their life to Jesus and all of a sudden find that a few years later they're giving and they're out of debt. Like, how does that even happen? But it happens. It's the change that Jesus creates in someone's life. Listen, because Jesus was faithful to God's mission, we can be too. See, the point that the author is making here is that Jesus' heart was soft toward the mission of God. His, his heart, his soul, the core of his being was pliable in the hands of the Father. Now, I want you to think about that in relationship to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he didn't want to go through all that, right? He didn't want to do it. Jesus prayed, <laughs> My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to go through this. Do you understand? On the cross, when Jesus hung there for your sins, he felt guilt for the very first time in his life. Can you imagine being 33 years old and never having felt guilt or shame? He hung there dying for you, feeling the guilt of your sin not just yours, but mine, everybody in this room, and every human being who's ever lived. Which is why when the weight of that came crashing down on him, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why he prayed in the garden three times, I don't want to do this, God. If there's any other way, let there be another way. But I want your way. <laughs> not my will, but yours be done. What is that? That is a soft heart. That is a heart that's soft toward God's mission. Even when it's not comfortable, even when it's not convenient, even when it's not fun to say, okay, God, I'll do what you want. My heart is soft toward you. You see, the warning in verse 7 through 11 is this direct quote of Psalm 95, which is a critique on the, the, this generation of Israelites that came out of the Exodus. Throughout the Bible, God regularly critiques that, the Exodus generation for their stubborn and rebellious nature. Sometimes I have wondered, and maybe you have too, don't raise your hand because this might be embarrassing, but have any of you ever wondered if God picked the nation of Israel because they were so stubborn? Like, just to show off, like, <laughs> like just because he can, like, if I'm going to pick them, and if I can save those yahoos, I can deal with anybody. I don't know, maybe not. The point of that is that nobody is beyond his redeeming power. I mean, if he can save even those stiff-necked rebels, you and I are within his power to save, to redeem, to transform, to make whole again. But if you want to participate in his mission, your heart has to be soft. 
1940, Dr. Clarence Jordan founded the Koinonia Farm. Koinonia means fellowship or sharing in Greek. The Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia, as a haven for racial unity and cooperation. Here's a picture of Dr. Jordan. He's the man looking at the tire. And another brother, um, African-American man. I I don't know his name. I looked. I couldn't find it in this picture. But that's Dr. Jordan on the right (laughs) um, serving on this farm together. He just believed that that was part of the gospel. I join him in that belief. I think he's right. I think that's the gospel destroys racism. Rightly applied, the gospel destroys racism. And, and I lo- so in, think about, now think about where and when this guy lives. 1940 in Georgia. This was like completely countercultural. Black people, white people working together, serving together, farming together. Right? In 1954, the Ku Klux Klan burned every building on the farm except Jordan's home. In the midst of the raid, as the men were shouting, uh, Dr. Jordan heard the voice in the crowd that he recognized. The voice was the voice of a local uh, reporter for the local paper. Couldn't see him, of course, because of the white hood. But he recognized his voice. The next day, that man had the gall to come back to do a story on the burning of the farm. He walked up to Dr. Jordan and he said, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night. I came out to do a story on the closing of your farm. Dr. Jordan's out there hoeing, working the dirt, planting seed. Just completely ignored the guy. Pretend like he didn't exist. He said, Dr. Jordan, did you hear me? I came out to do a story on the closing of your farm. Just, he just kept hoeing. And he said, Dr. Jordan, you, you have two PhDs. You put 14 years into this farm. It's a smoking rubble now. There's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? And at that, Dr. Jordan put down his hoe and turned around and looked that man dead in the eye and said this, you just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. Notice the distinction there. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. Listen, if you're going to hand off your faith and share the faithfulness of Jesus, your heart has to be soft toward the things of God. And some of you are sitting there going, Casey, but you don't know where I work, man. If I have a soft heart, they will eat me alive. Is your God God or not? He never said discipleship would be easy. He did say it'd be worth it. Pay's not great, but the retirement plan is out of this world. (laughs) Your heart has to be soft. What happens when your heart is soft is it helps you hear the Spirit when He says to give witness to somebody. It's that still, small voice. You know the voice. I hope you know the voice. It's it's the voice you hear in your head that's not your own internal monologue. We all have that. You know your own voice in your head. It's the other one that says, hey, talk about Jesus right now. Say something. It's what a soft heart helps you know when to be just radically generous, radically hospitable to somebody. It gives you compassion for a world that may very well think that you're a fool for what you believe. 
See, Jesus' faithfulness to the mission of God helps us stay on mission for him by having a soft heart. That's part one of the game plan. Here's part two. It helps us encourage one another. Before we get into how critical it is for you to have people regularly encouraging you so you can hand off your faith, there's something I want to say related to this, okay? Um, For those of you uh, watching online, again, grateful that you do that. Some of you do that because you're not feeling well today or you're homebound or maybe you're watching later uh, because you're working. I don't know. If that's the case, I'm not talking to you. But I am talking to you if this is all you got for church. If you can't make it today, awesome. If you're out of town, you're somewhere else, cool. We're glad you joined us. But if this is church for you, I'm suggesting that maybe, not maybe, you can't do this. You you can't, okay? I I want you to be able to do that. That's why every week you hear us say, if you're local, come join us, because you need to be rubbing shoulders with other believers to do this. Now, don't get me wrong, church. I believe that monologue still works. Monologue, one-way communication, absolutely works. How many of you have ever all of a sudden gotten randomly hungry because you saw a cheeseburger commercial late at night? (laughs) That's monologue. That's one-way communication. It works great when it speaks to your need. And maybe that's what this is. Maybe you're watching for the very first time. Awesome. I'm so thankful. But if this is church for you, you can't do what we're talking about. You got, and, and here's the deal, church. If all you got is you show up and give us one hour once a week, I'm not even sure you can do it. That's why we so encourage you to be part of a group. Because you got to be, if it's Sunday morning group, awesome. Sunday school class, awesome. Life group, awesome. Rooted, awesome. But you've got to be part of something where you're with other Christians who are speaking into your life and encouraging you. In the text, we are commanded to encourage one another. I checked the Greek. It's an imperative. It's a command. Do this. As long as it's called today. And what that means is regularly, daily even. Because if I understand this correctly, somebody's salvation may hang in the balance. The author is saying here that if your heart is hard and rebellious, you can't enter God's rest. If you have a sinful and unbelieving heart, you can't stay in relationship with God. And here's what you need to understand. He is speaking to God's people here. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to the church. Say, Casey, how do you know that? Well, first of all, the image that he's using are the covenant people of God. He goes back to Psalm 95 which reflects even further back to Deuteronomy and Numbers, right? Secondly is he calls them brothers and sisters. The Greek word adelphoi, it's the New Testament word for the church. It's the family. He is talking to God's people. He is talking about God's people, and he's warning them not to fall away, not to give up on the faith. He's telling them to be faithful to the faith. Now, for some of you who maybe have a different uh, you know, background or upbringing in the church, this is my push on you a little bit, okay? Please just give me the grace that you'd expect in the same situation. But I want to put a thought in front of you. I mean, here's the deal. I, <laughs> this text cannot be aimed at non-believers, right? The original context is quoting, these are people of the covenant. The address, brothers and sisters, is rock-solid evidence. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to unbelievers. Now, I've mentioned to you before, I'm not a Calvinist in terms of my doctrine. So I do believe it's possible, not likely, not even frequent, very, very rare, but it is possible, theologically speaking, for a previously saved person to intentionally, permanently, and willfully turn away from their salvation and forfeit it. Now, please understand me. You can't lose it. 
It's not, what, what, what the author of Hebrews is talking about here is not like losing your car keys. It's like getting a divorce. I do believe that the scripture cracks the door and leaves it open just wide enough for this to happen. Very, very rare. And the person has to, and you've got to read the rest of the book of Hebrews. We don't have time for it today. But you've got to understand, he, he talks about people who've tasted the heavenly gift. They've experienced the Spirit of God in their life. Falling away. Now, some of you say, Casey, that's impossible. I had my Sunday school teacher tell me, that's impossible. Really? If it is impossible, if it cannot happen, why are there so many warnings against it in the New Testament? It doesn't make sense. It would be like me, if I could reflect on a previous sermon series, telling you, hey, be careful when you fly that you don't run into an airplane. You can't do that. Why bother? Why waste the breath? Why, why give a warning if it's impossible to fulfill? Here, here's, here's why this matters, okay? This is, this is why this is important. The author of Hebrews says that we have come to share in Christ. The, the word means to participate in, in Jesus. It's like when someone gets baptized, we say that they're identifying with and participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? And we've come to share in Christ if, did you notice that? If we hold to our original conviction. Twice in 14 verses, it uses this huge word, if. I'm trying to tell you why encouraging each other is so vital. It's so important. Listen to me. In order to receive all the blessings and glory of the Christian faith, all the blessings and glory that awaits us one day when Jesus comes again, to receive all the blessings of the faith, you got to stay in it, man. got to be part of it, lady. That's why encouraging each other is so vital. It matters. Listen, every day, encourage your brothers and sisters to remain true to Jesus, to be faithful. (laughs) Huddle up. Lock arms. We got to do this thing together. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto, right? Like, you, you, we have to do this together. There's a great example of this in George Lucas's 2012 film, Red Tails. Kind of provides a dramatized uh, version of the true events behind uh, the, the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. They became famous for two reasons. First of all, they were the first African-American military aviators in the United States Armed Forces. Um, and so they hold a special significance in U.S. military history, not only racially, but also militarily. Because in the European air war, U.S. bombers were getting shot down at increasingly alarming rates. See, what was happening was these fighters would accompany the bombers on their bombing runs over Europe. And when the enemy German planes would come in, they'd fly off to go engage the fighters. And the the bombers would get shot down. Because you can't be there all the time and watching everything. And they're just losing all these bombers. Every bomber had a crew of 10 to 12 American men. Plus all the musicians and munitions and the bomb that they were going to drop. And so the, the commander came to these, these soldiers, these Tuskegee Airmen. He said, okay, new plan. Here's the deal. Never leave the bombers. Ever. No matter what's happening around you, you stay with that bomber. When the enemy is attacked, when the enemy attacks, you stay the course, you defend your charge. Never leave the bomber. And the result of their devotion? Out of the hundreds of bombing runs that happened after that, only 25 that they protected were lost. It it became kind of a legend. Like if you were flying a bombing run, you wanted the red tails 
guarding you. In the movie, the Tuskegee Airmen gather for prayer before their mission on an airfield in a foreign country, and this happens. Watch. Right there at the very end, to the last plane, to the last bullet, to the last minute, to the last man, we fight. They're celebrated not just because they were excellent pilots, they were, but also because they never wavered from their duty. They never left their charge. No matter what happened, they stayed faithful. So how does this work? Well, we encourage each other. You need a community around you, first of all, to help hold you accountable when you blow it. Gently, lovingly, but we're not perfect. We know that. And you need a group of people around you that can be like, dude, what is your deal? <laughs> like, I love you. you we got to work on this, man. You need that. That's, that's part of how we encourage each other, all right? Secondly, you need a group of people who surround you to give you prayer cover. When, just like the Red Tails followed the bomber, you need people around you when you go in on a bombing run for Jesus I'm using the metaphor very loosely here. But when you go in to share your faith, like you can call your, your, your brothers and sisters around and say, hey, I have an opportunity to share my faith. Would you pray for me today? I'm going to ask for you to pray for me. I've been developing a relationship with a guy at my gym named John. We're almost there. We're so close. I, I, I might have had an opportunity yesterday. I wasn't sure. I couldn't quite read it. But we're right on the cusp of me being able to speak Jesus to him. I've earned enough of his trust to be able to do that. And I would welcome your prayers. I got to fly out of here at five o'clock this afternoon. I'm going to try to get there today and hopefully connect with him one more time. I just it's, it's opportunity to provide prayer cover for when we share our faith. You need that community to encourage you. And most importantly, this becomes a community to invite others into, right? The church becomes, it should be like an incubator for baby Christians, a healthy community for them to be part of, that they can find that encouragement and that strengthening and that accountability to live out their faith. Listen to me, listen to me. You don't have to be perfect to be proved faithful, but you do have to persist. The essence of faithfulness is not perfection, it's persistence. You will blow it. It's not if, it's when, y'all. What happens next is really what we're talking about. By the grace of God, you get up. Okay, here we go. Persistence in keeping a soft heart. Persistence in in encouraging your brothers and sisters. Persistence in living in communion with Jesus and community with his people. Persistence in living a righteous life in an unrighteous world. That is what is required of you to be faithful to the end and hand off your faith to somebody else. And that kind of faithfulness makes a huge impact on the world. It completely undercuts the notion that all Christians, and especially if you watch the news lately, evangelicals, are uncaring, selfish hypocrites. I love how the Renaissance era priest, a Jesuit priest, Jean-Pierre de Cassade, described this in his book, The Joy of the Saints. He writes, to escape the distress caused by regret for the past or fear about the future, this is the rule to follow. Leave the past to the infinite mercy of God, the future to his good providence, and give the present wholly to his love by being faithful to his grace. Listen, I get it. A message on faithfulness can come off as being a little in your face. I'm not going to apologize for that. But if I understand this text correctly, way too much is at stake for us to not care about this. 
I mean, not only the evangelization of the world, but even someone's people's relationship and standing with God. We got to get this right, church. Here's the big idea this morning, and we're done, okay? Listen, Jesus is always faithful, and he calls us to share his faithfulness because when we do, our witness has real staying power. When you're faithful in your marriage, when you're faithful in your work, when you're faithful in your witness, when you're faithful in your relationships, what you say about Jesus in the public arena has so much more weight. It sticks in people's minds, and they remember, I don't know about all the rest of those yahoos, but that dude, that gal, is a real Christian. That's what we need in this world. They're not rejecting the, they're not rejecting the real stuff. They're rejecting the fake stuff. So let's be real. Let's be authentic. Let's be faithful to the mission of Jesus because he was faithful to you. And that's what I'm inviting you into today. In just a second, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing a song. And you have an opportunity to respond. If you've never been, become part of the team, I want to invite you to join the team today. <laughs> Go blue. That's hard to hear when you're 42 down to nothing. It's hard to hear when you're 42 points behind. Some of you feel hesitant and scared to share your faith. That's fair. We're not the home team anymore. But do you know who our captain is? You see, he played the game perfect. Perfect record. Never made a mistake. Every play he called was the right one. (laughs) He laid down his life for his team. And he's calling us to play by his playbook. You going to do that today? You want to be part of his team? Because one day the captain is going to come back. And he's going to take the field. And when he does, it's game over. And we've got to be faithful until that day comes. I'm going to ask you to join me in that. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you need to come forward and profess faith in Jesus and be baptized. Maybe there's an area of sin in your life. John was mentioning earlier, like there's there's a place of brokenness that, that you want to just have someone pray with you and pray for you. I don't know. Maybe there's another need. You might have some questions. Maybe you're new here and want to say, I don't know about this, but I'd like to talk to someone. You can go to the next step room. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. and We're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you today.